Hi, I'm Yusuf Hassan. And I'm Ahmed Soliman. And you're listening to Africa Aware, a podcast from the Chatham House Africa Programme. Welcome to Africa Aware. On this episode, we will be discussing Sudan's economic stabilisation. Two years on from the revolution to Nepal's long-term dictator, Ahmad Bashir, Sudan has taken notable steps towards stabilizing its economy, including re-engaging with the international community, which led to its delisting from the US state sponsored terrorism list, which of course was a major obstacle. However, with inflation of over 300% and ailing infrastructure, citizens continue to struggle to see the dividends. Despite our work on Sudan over recent years, I'm joined by my colleague, Ahmed Suleiman, who provide us with a quick overview. Hi, Ahmed. Hi, Yusuf. Thanks so much for having me on. Always a pleasure. Ahmed, could you tell us a little bit more about the work the Africa Programme is doing on Sudan? Sure, I'd be delighted. So over the years, we've developed a really successful track record of research on Sudan through our Horn of Africa project. And we're one of the world's leading forums for the discussion of Sudan, using our convening power and reputation as a neutral forum for dialogue and debate. We currently have two projects on Sudan. The first is focused on international support for the transition, and it examines the evolution towards peace, democratization, and economic recovery. So far, we've organized events and we've written comment pieces on the Juba Peace Agreement, on the issue of transitional justice and the ICC. And on the topic of Sudan's economic stabilization, we have course, this podcast, uh, as well as a recent panel event with the Honorable Dr. Jibril Ibrahim, Sudan's finance minister, Dr. Hafiz Ghanem, the World Bank's VP for East and Southern Africa, and the French Special Envoy for Sudan, Ambassador Jean-Michel Dumont. It's well worth watching the video of that. And ahead of the Paris Investment Summit on the 17th of May on Sudan, we'll also publish a comment piece on international support for Sudan's economic reform exploring how this is vital to underpinning the broader political transition. We're also planning further activities on topics including federalism, Sudan's regional relations, and the role of women in the transition. The second project we have is one supporting efforts to foster inclusive and accountable governance Sudan by strengthening policy dialogue and bolstering the country's fragile process towards democracy. The project aims to give voice to regional communities and stakeholders communicating their needs, their views, their expectations to decision makers at the center. Uh, the idea is to enable greater citizen participation in policy making and critically to include more voices from outside of Khartoum, which were particularly marginalized during the former regime. We want to establish a, a policy feedback loop between the center and the regions, which will help lead to better decision making and more inclusive governance during the transition and help to establish the foundations for sustainable peace and democratization. It's really exciting work, and I recommend our listeners follow our content through the Chatham House website, Facebook page, and social media channels such as Twitter. Thanks so much for that overview, Ahmed. It's fascinating to hear all the work that we're doing, and we will continue to do on this topic. Thank you, Yusuf. Also in this episode, I will be joined by Dame Rosalind Marsden, Dame Rosalind Marsden is an Associate Fellow of the Chatham House Africa Programme and expert on Sudan and South Sudan. She's a former British diplomat who served as Ambassador to Sudan and Afghanistan and also served as Consul General in Basra, Iraq. Dame Rosalind was also the EU Special Representative for Sudan and South Sudan from 2010 until 2013. 
Their Muslim is also a trustee, conciliation resources, a peace-building NGO, and an honorary fellow of Somerville College, Oxford. Hi, Rosalind, and welcome to Africa Aware. How are you doing? Um, very well indeed, thank you. Of course, this podcast is about Sudan, about Sudan's transition, and of course, economic stabilisation. In itself, nearly two years on from the appointment of Prime Minister Hamdouk, how would you assess his government's successes and failures? Well, I think that Sudan's democratic transition is moving broadly in the right direction, although much more slowly than had been hoped by many Sudanese, particularly the women and youth who drove the revolution and I think um, had expected to see faster change. Also, some frustration by people outside Khartoum, where changes come even more slowly, and especially, of course, for the more than 2 million Sudanese who are still living in camps for internally displaced people and for refugees who were driven from their lands by the conflict in Darfur and then by the conflict in uh, the Nuba Mountains and Blue Nile. Nevertheless, I think the government of Abdullah Hamdok has notched up some very impressive achievements, particularly the signing of the Juba peace agreement with the Sudan Revolutionary Front last October. Sudan Revolutionary Front's a broad alliance of armed movements and other political groups. And this agreement was an important first step towards bringing peace to Sudan's conflict zones. Then there was also the signing last month of a declaration of principles with another very important armed group led by Abdulaziz al-Hilu. And on the economic front, the removal of Sudan from the US list of state sponsors of terrorism, which had isolated the country from the Western world for several decades, is very significant. And delisting paves the way for Sudan's reintegration into the international community. But there are still lots of challenges and in particular, there are still widespread economic hardship for millions of Sudanese in their daily lives. Inflation is running at over 300% and there are still shortages of essential commodities such as fuel, electricity and medicines. In Khartoum, one can still see very long queues for petrol, cars queuing up round the block and also frequent power cuts. In addition, um, on the security side, there's been a recent spike in violence in Darfur with a large number of civilian casualties in two separate very serious incidents this year in January and again in April in, in El Jenena, which is the capital of West Darfur, near to Sudan's border with Chad. And implementation of the Juba peace agreement, including the security arrangements, is moving very slowly. There's still no transitional legislative assembly which is needed to provide accountability and oversight. And women and youth feel they haven't yet been sufficiently involved in the transition. I think that part of the problem is lack of capacity in the government and the need for institutional reform. There are still a lot of spoilers from the old regime who want Sudan's democratic transition to fail. And many of them are still holding senior positions in the civil service and other state institutions. So the challenges are enormous. And as Prime Minister Hamdok often points out, Sudan is going through multiple transitions 
This is the most complicated transition in the country's history, but the success of the transition is of critical importance to the whole region and really deserves strong support from the international community. To follow up about a part you mentioned in particular, the balance that exists in, in Sudanese society at current and actually in, in the governance system, right, with the sovereign council. We currently see somewhat of a interesting dynamic between the military and civilian and economic, of course, players in Sudan, and of course that's seen via the sovereign council. How would you describe them at current? Are things stable? Are we seeing some progress with regards to the transition towards civilian rule? Well, I think that political power in the transition is effectively held by several different groups, including the army, the rapid support force, the armed movements who signed the Juba Peace Agreement, and the civilians. And the civilians include the political parties and civil society groups who are part of the broad alliance called the Forces of Freedom and Change. A lot of people, I, I would say, are, are worried about the balance of power between military and civilians and are concerned that perhaps the military are encroaching on civilian competences. But it's equally true that if the civilians want to preserve their influence in the transition, then different civilian groups need to stick together and to be more united rather than squabbling among themselves. I think the formation of the new cabinet, which includes more politicians than the previous technocratic cabinet, has helped in this respect and given Prime Minister Hamduk a stronger political support base. I think the government perhaps recognises that it also needs to do a better job in communicating with the public and explaining the problems it faces and setting out clear, concrete plans for addressing them, because strong public backing will strengthen their position vis-a-vis -vis the military. But at the same time, I think there's also a recognition that the current partnership between military and civilians is an important element in the transition to maintain security in the country. And there is a degree of political accommodation between all these elements, as well as some jockeying for position. Prime Minister Hamdok has said that although there are some challenges, he thinks there is a strong determination from all sides to make this partnership work. But looking at it from an economic perspective, there are concerns that the presence of big state-owned companies controlled by the military, which enjoyed tax exemptions and other privileges under the former regime, could discourage investors. So some steps have recently been taken to start to address this issue, including a recent decision to publish the names of 600 state-owned enterprises on the Ministry of Finance's website, which is a very welcome step towards greater transparency. And also the army's agreement that military-owned companies that are involved in civilian activities should be brought under the oversight of the Ministry of Finance. Although this doesn't apply to Al Junaid, the large company owned by the family of General Hamiti, the head of the rapid support force, because this is a privately owned company. Once again, that information I'm sure our audience will deeply appreciate in being able to better understand exactly where Sudan stands and where the stabilisation project is going. To come to an end, what do you believe the long-term prospects are for the inclusive economic growth we are all hoping to see Sudan be able to gain and, and, and benefit citizens with? I think that in order to achieve longer-term inclusive economic growth, a number of other structural reforms will be needed. 
after 30 years of economic mismanagement and corruption under the previous regime, there's an urgent need to invest in the productive sectors of the economy, particularly agriculture, where the majority of the population earn their living, but which was neglected during the oil boom decade in the noughties. And as a result, Sudan still suffers from weak competitiveness and over-reliance on exports of natural resources and raw materials rather than value-added goods. So there is a lot of potential for modernising agriculture with the introduction of modern techniques and improved access to agricultural loans, the development of agribusiness and the greater use of solar power so suitable for this country and other renewable energy sources. And I think Sudan at the moment is looking at its longer-term investment strategy in preparation for the Paris Conference and beyond. And one important approach could be to try to focus on uh, integrated development in particular areas so that investment in, pro in certain projects are combined with the provision of roads to allow access and power supply and other essentials. So that plan will be very important when we see it. To ensure growth is inclusive, a lot will also depend on governance reforms and on the government pursuing a more balanced development strategy that will address inequalities between the centre and the peripheries that have historically always been marginalised. The Juba Peace Agreement is very important in this respect because it provides for significant fiscal decentralisation. For example, for the conflict-affected zones to retain 40% of their revenue from natural resources for reconstruction in their region, and also for significant financial transfers from Khartoum to Darfur. It also provides for a national governance conference, which is expected to be held within the next few months, which will address fiscal federalism the powers that will be devolved to the regional governments and will address the big question of how Sudan should be governed. The government's also been preparing a poverty reduction strategy as part of its preparations for debt relief, and this should in turn help to direct more resources to poor and vulnerable populations in conflict-affected and other marginalised areas of the country, such as East Sudan. But inclusive economic growth isn't just a matter of geographical rebalancing. The government will also need to live up to its commitments to increase women's political participation and to give greater priority to women's economic empowerment, as well as expanding educational and employment opportunities for youth who make up two thirds of Sudan's population, but who suffer from a very high level of unemployment, including among graduates. So trying to prioritise economic policies that will benefit the country's large youth population will be a really important element of a strategy for inclusive economic growth. Wow, well, that was a really, really interesting interview. Thank you so much for your time today, Rosalind. No, my pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. And now moving on to the main interview. My colleague Ahmed and I spoke with Adam Al-Haraika, the Executive Director of the Prime Minister's Office of Sudan, about the country's economic reforms. During this interview, Adam spoke to us in his personal capacity as an economist, having previously served as the Prime Minister's economic advisor. 
Prior to his current role, he served as Director of the Macroeconomics and Governance Division of the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa, UNECA. Dr. Al-Harek has also served as an Assistant and Associate Professor of Economics in several universities and has published extensively. Dr. Adam, thank you very much for taking time to speak to us. We have some questions for you and, and we're really grateful for you taking the opportunity to answer these. Uh, the first one I have is really around what we're seeing in, in Khartoum and, and throughout Sudan at the moment, which is worsening inflation, which has reached over 300%. We've seen petrol queues for some time, regular power cuts and shortages of some foodstuffs and commodities. And we've seen demonstrations accompanying those. Can I ask you, what are the root causes of these shortages? Why is it taking so long to resolve the problems? And, and what can be done in the short term to ease the widespread hardship that is being experienced by many Sudanese? This is a very relevant question for us in Sudan now. The economy has gone through very difficult times. And uh, as you said, inflation rate uh, increased significantly. And uh, we still have a number of shortages despite the reforms undertaken by the government in terms of subsidies reforms in particular and unification of exchange rate. We still have some shortages in fuel supplies from time to time. The issue really has to do with creating a new institutional setup for addressing supply of basic commodities, strategic commodities such as fuel. Let me focus just on fuel. Previously, government used to control this market fully, and we used to produce most of the fuel consumed locally. Now, more than 50% of domestic consumption is imported, so government has to work on, first of all, supply of fuel from external sources. Second, the handling, distribution, and so on. When we also have so many companies involved in distribution of fuel, more than 30 distributors previously working, now uh, most of them are not financially equipped to distribute large quantities of fuel. So we have now a limited number of distributors compared to what we had before with the unexpected shutdown in uh, our main gas refinery. There was a shortage, especially in diesel. But now I think the refinery is working in full capacity and the government has also purchased gas from external sources. And now it's just a matter of distribution bottlenecks. And uh, we hope that these shortages will not appear again in future. Regarding other commodities, especially wheat, I think government is working on supply of wheat from different sources, especially through USAID. And I think uh, we are good this year. We will not see shortages in wheat supplies. Perhaps moving that question a bit further, can the family support program cushion the impact from those who are most in need? 
We've seen that beneficiaries of the program are being invited to register at the moment with their ID numbers and bank or mobile accounts in order to qualify for this scheme. Can I ask a bit more about this and and what is being done to reach out to to people who can't fulfill those requirements, perhaps, such as people living in rural areas to nomadic populations and to those who are within the IDP camps? Well, I think the overall question of whether the family support program can question the impact of economic reforms on vulnerable groups and families. The program is part of a number of interventions meant at questioning the impact of economic reforms. And uh, we cannot claim to say that this family support program alone can do the job. But there are a number of other interventions, including low-cost sale points of basic commodities. Also, uh, government continue to subsidize a number of basic commodities, including electricity, uh, including medical pharmaceuticals, and still government subsidized, as you know, uh, wheat, and this will continue because we know the impact of the reforms is really big. So family support program is just part of the support system. Now on how to reach out to those in rural areas, nomads and IDPs, I think government started with some pilot states, including Red Sea State, South Darfur, and those places are still part of the pilot program. But now government is started to the registration system and will do a special effort to reach out to those in rural areas and nomad people. And I think this is the next step of the program. The government program is working on how to reach out to those vulnerable groups in rural areas and in nomad areas. This is the next step and it's still under studies. The data collected so far actually points out to huge needs even within urban areas for support. And in the end, as you know, we want the program to reach out about 80% of the people. So the strategies are being modified according to the data collected in the point states from both urban areas and rural areas. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Adam. It's fascinating to hear the work really being done to, to reach out to those disaffected of sorts of communities. And I think a key actor in, in much of what you've mentioned are the banks. Banking reform is vital to promote economic growth by mobilizing resources to support productive investment and employment opportunities. One important reform that's just been taken, of course, is the new law allowing Sudanese banks to operate as conventional, but also utilizing the Islamic banking window. What other measures are being taken to reform the banking system and encourage the establishment of correspondent banking relations with international banks? Basically, as you know, the banking sector in Sudan remains very small in terms of penetration. The banking services in Sudan cover less than 15% of the population, which is very, very small. And the objective is really to make banking services more accessible to people in Sudan, in rural areas, as well as in urban areas. A number of reforms are being put in place by the Central Bank of Sudan and the government in general in order to promote expansion of the banking sector and in order to improve governance of the banking sector. I think the key reforms relate to capitalization of banks, 
and encouraging banking to recapitalize, encouraging banks to merger in order to increase their strength in their capacity and their capital. And also, the central bank is working on a number of areas to strengthen banking supervision within the staff monitor program. A lot of progress has been made in these areas, but I think one key area that will facilitate expansion of the banking sector is what you have mentioned, the legislation related to adoption of a dual banking system. We hope that this will encourage new investment in banking and insurance and finance in general in Sudan. And we hope that this will also attract new investment by local and foreign investors in the banking sector because this will open opportunities to conventional banking financial institutions to invest or to open branches in Sudan. But also that the reforms include encouragements, you know, instruments to encourage banks to establish new correspondence relationships, especially uh, with the removal of the name of Sudan for, from the list of countries sponsoring terrorists. A lot of opportunities are now opening up, but they are taking time to materialize, I must admit. Uh, correspondence banking is very important for us to promote formal financial services and relations with international financial institutions. This is taking a bit of time because, as you know, after nearly 30 years of isolation, financial institutions globally are taking time to respond to requests from Sudanese banking and financial institutions to restart uh, correspondence banking. I think some progress is being made. I mean, especially with, uh, progress with uh, regional banks in the Gulf area. We have a number of new relations being established by Sudanese banks, and we hope to have uh, more correspondence links uh, with banks in the U.S. and Europe and elsewhere. And this will help smooth and facilitate official transfers of funds, especially by Sudanese business people uh, in the country and outside the country and by Sudanese nationals working approach. Thank you very much for that really thorough answer. Switching to the issue of international support for Sudan's economic reforms, we know that Sudan has a significant external debt, you know, one of the highest internationally of, of $60 billion. I wonder if you could shed some light on the steps Sudan is taking towards arrears clearance and, and being eligible for debt relief and financing. We know there has been some positive news recently with regards to that and the, mm. the SMP program that is going on with the IMF. But what are the key challenges that remain? Sudan has taken uh, very rigorous steps towards restarting its uh, relations with international financial institutions and engaging in negotiation on debt relief. And I think the most difficult steps relate to the reform program. As you know, from the last quarter of 2020, Sudan started rigorous and very difficult subsidies reforms, including removal of subsidies from uh, fuels. And Sudan has also taken one of the most important reforms related to exchange rate unification, which started about two months ago. These are some of the most important reforms also 
other reforms are being taken related to budget revenue mobilization, expenditure, and related to budget transparency and economic governance in general. So the hope is, and I think Sudan should be in good shape moving forward to qualify as a big country. Sudan has also drafted a policy a poverty reduction strategy paper in this context. So Sudan is moving in the right direction, in my view, in terms of uh, implementation of the staff monitor program and qualifying as a heavy country. So what Sudan is hoping to have is to engage with partners and with donors, and the process has already started, and Paris conference will provide an opportunity for further engagement with donors. This, this is, of course, a process. We are not saying it will be concluded there, but it will be consolidated, it will be strengthened, the process will be strengthened for the country to move forward with the HIBIC program. So we hope that through this process, most of the debt of Sudan could be cancelled in the near future. And I think the challenges are now really for, to continue the engagement with partners and to receive the support needed to implement the reforms. As you know, the reforms are many, and I think uh, we are moving in the right direction. We just want to remain engaged with partners for the full implementation of the reforms. Also, the implementation of mitigation measures needed to address the side effects of the reforms. Thank you very much. And also very positive news that we've seen on the arrears clearance process that, you know, the, the U.S. stepping up to support Sudan's arrears clearance to the World Bank. The U.K., of course, doing similar with the African Development Bank. And, and then we're hearing rumours that, of course, that there may be an announcement of France's support for the Sudan's arrears to the IMF at the Paris Investment Summit. So it kind of takes me to this question of the role of Sudan's international partners in supporting the country. And particularly, you know, we're going through an unprecedented time globally of financial uncertainty, in particular related to the effects and impacts of the pandemic. With that in mind, can I ask what you're expecting from the Paris Investment Summit and what the hopes are and the engagement in developing the agenda for that? The government is moving forward with implementation of reforms and taking steps for the country to benefit from the HEBEX program. And the challenges, as I said, also relate mainly to continued coordination and support, especially financial support for implement, needed for implementation of reforms and related measures. Now, the Paris Conference is an important conference in this process. It's not just for debt relief, but for investment. The, the conference has four components. The first component has to do with business. Uh, this is a business forum. So Sudan will engage with partners and investors in this conference. Both government and private sector will present and showcase investment and business opportunities in Sudan and potential partnerships, uh, public as well as private partnerships for increased investment in Sudan, and Sudan is 
has prepared a business case for this engagement, starting with adoption of a new investment law and presentation of integrated investments in infrastructure, agriculture, energy, and so on that will help jointly address business issues. Sudan is also working on this session on uh, debt relief and to engage partners on the reforms that have been undertaken by Sudan and further reforms to be undertaken for the country to benefit from the HEDEX initiative. There is an Africa forum, a finance forum uh, that includes Sudan and the rest of Africa. And the the last session will be uh, on civil society. This will be uh, on issues related to political and uh, democratic transition in the country and voices of the revolution. So thinking about the recent experience of the country, the relationship between the centre and Sudan's historically marginalised and conflict-affected regions, including two areas, including Darfur and others, can I ask you your views on economic decentralisation and the importance of implementing it and how you think the best way to do so is in order to ensure inclusive growth and, of course, improve that working relationship and, and, and build, I guess, those other areas of the country which have been neglected for some time? Well, you know, addressing the issues of marginalisation or equity in general is one of the slogans of the revolution, which is about uh, peace, justice and equity. And the government has developed a three-year program, development program, and prepared a business case and investment program also, which some elements of it or some selected elements of it will be presented at Paris conference. All these priorities that have been identified focus on addressing the question of equity and the question of investment in marginalized areas. Also, we have the Juba Peace Agreement, uh, which has interventions and reforms that are needed in order to address the issues of marginalized areas. So I think the issue of marginalized areas, therefore, the two other two areas, and in and Eastern Sudan, is at the center of all the work being done by government to improve economic situation in the country. I think moving forward and based on the vision of the government and the prime minister in particular, the issues of the privity, the issues of marginalization will be at the center of government strategies and not an add-in issue. question that I'd like to ask if possible would be on the topic of tax and It'd be good to hear your response to what the government's plan is for expanding the tax base. Of course, the current system where only 6% of GDP is collected via tax, it would be very, very interesting to hear what the government has planned to respond to that issue. Well, you know, Yusuf, here we inherited a significantly dysfunctional revenue system. And government has named the year 2021 as the year of reform of the revenue system. So the reform has just started and government is working on this. And uh, I do not have uh, any information to share with you. Probably the Minister of Finance can respond to a question like this. Thank you so much for your time again, Dr. Adam. The final question that we have for you is one that I know that we've discussed personally previously and, and you've highlighted the importance of 
which is Sudan's need to develop its human capital. Can I ask what the plans are for increasing social spending, strengthening the education sector, uh, expanding economic opportunities for women and, and, and younger people, and, and how much you see that as a, a, a priority for Sudan, a country that has been known in the past for its economic as well as its medical and, and many other strengths in different fields. Again, uh, I think uh, relevant ministers can really elaborate more on this, but I just want to give you a general answer to emphasize the fact that, uh, you know, investment in human capital and education and health in particular is a priority in the country. For the first time that uh, the 2021 budget allocated close to around 10% to education and around the same to health sector. So this is very significant compared to previous allocations to health. So about 10% of the budget now is allocated to health and about 10%, more than 10% to education. I mean, if you actually look at allocation to health services, education and social development, which is close to 30%, significantly more than what government spends on the military and uh, security forces jointly together. So government is now looking at these sectors as priority sectors, and I think government will continue to give more attention to building human capacity in terms of education, training, and uh, to health services. This is definitely a high priority as reflected in the 2021 budget. Thank you very, very much, Dr. Adam, and, and thank you so much for your time. This thank you. And that brings us to an end of this episode of Africa Aware. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Please do subscribe on the platform that you're listening to us on to ensure that you don't miss an episode. And do leave a review, as that will allow others to find this podcast easier. Thanks for listening to Africa Aware. I've been your host, Yusuf Hassan. Goodbye.